0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Freedom Podcast. Katie here with Alexis, and we have a very special guest today—my dad, Gary Rutherford—and <laughs> um, we're super excited. My dad and I have been chatting, well, and also with Lexi, we've just been chatting about how cool it would be to have you on the podcast um, because, for well, for a multitude of reasons. But one of the one of the biggest is he—you've been an inspiration to me just in your faith walk and your ministry and just being a leader and um there's just so many things about your life that i look up to and and am very inspired by but also at the same time you have an expertise in pharmaceuticals and was a pharmacist for over four decades and just a lot of knowledge on the healthcare industry and supplementation and lexi and i are very interested in the healthcare industry in general and also how it ties into just general health and fitness and the supplement industry, and some of the corruption we see <laughs> in our society when it comes to pharmaceuticals. And just, um, I think also with the pandemic and a lot of the different things that were happening there, there's just been a lot in our society when it comes to healthcare and pharmaceuticals. And so, you as someone who worked in that industry for so long, I think you have just such unique insight. But then also having your faith in God and and um, just that perspective, I think it's you just over the years. I mean, I just my eyes have been opened to so many different things because of you. So we wanted to dive into um, just your story a little bit, and hopefully it'll be it'll be eye opening for some of our listeners and it just interesting, maybe
1: interesting and
0: interesting, yeah. <laughs> very interesting so um and then if someone's listening to that maybe has seen clips of my dad on my instagram (laughs) we still lift together Mm -hmm. and um since he's been retired for i guess now a couple of months Mm -hmm. we have been a little bit more consistent with our workouts together which has been fun but he's always been my number one supporter in all of my athletics and Mm -hmm. we started lifting together way back. And I mean, when I was like 12 years old, I think w- was my first memory of us lifting together in the gym. So always such a huge encourager for me and my fitness endeavors, even if they were a little bit contrary to what a, a normal young girl would want to do. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so let's yeah. dive into it. Great. So you want to give a little bit of background and and um, just about family and maybe athletics
1: and education? Sure. sure. So I was born a long time ago. (laughs) I'm 69, but uh, I come from a large family. We had seven children, six boys and a girl. And uh, my dad and my mom were very devoted to family and um, also to their faith. And um, it was a great environment, uh, really, to be raised in. The one downside of in my, in my upbringing is um, we moved um, six or seven times before I graduated from high school. And so um, I was never tied to a particular sh- school or, or group of friends. And I guess it taught me to be flexible, you know? And uh, we moved my junior year in high school and uh, that, that was tough, um, but, uh, but overall it was a great childhood. And we lived a lot of neat places too. Um, athletics were very important to me. Um, played all of them, um, but my primary sport became wrestling. Wrestled in high school and college and uh, loved it. Um, had a propensity to get injured somehow. Um, I broke, wow, uh,
0: Apple doesn't fall yeah, apart from
1: the tree. I, uh, <laughs> I broke my hand twice, um, both uh, two seasons, both before the, the tournament in high school. Then in college, my freshman year, I blew out my ACL and medial collateral in my uh, left leg and uh, maybe about half the wrestler that um, I felt like I could have been. But it was devastating for me um, at that time because my uh, even though I went to college to to learn uh, and uh, was in the pharmacy program at Ohio Northern uh, University here in Ohio, my primary focus was probably wrestling. I mean to be honest, uh, initially. Um, so when that was taken away from me, uh, I, I basically wrestled two and a half years, um, but just couldn't continue with my knee. Um, I was very very disappointed. Um, so uh, growing up, you know, my parents, um, you know, instilled in us a faith. Um, I would say that I was very spiritually interested. Um, but I was easily diverted. And uh, one of those things that, uh, one, you know, in handling disappointments and anxieties and pains in life, um, I turned to alcohol and drugs during college. And, uh, you know, some of the, the bottom line is that works. Um, you know, I'd always been an anxious kid. I, my parents, they have kind of an interesting history, too. Both my grandfathers were alcoholics. And um, my parents are the uh, quintessential um, adult children of alcoholics. They're perfectionists um, and uh, they're always trying to you know, control everything in their environment around them. And so they raised a nervous kid, that was me, Gary. And so I was an anxious kid, had a lot of anxiety. And um, I was worried about how I competed, um, how I uh, did in school how I look to people, um, and I was overly conscious of this stuff. And then in in college, uh when I lost the the wrestling, I, I discovered that, you know, all these feelings of anxiety um kind of melted away um when I take a drink. And um you know didn't have any intent on becoming um dependent. Um Quite frankly, I don't even I don't even believe in the uh, disease concept of alcoholism and, and drug dependency. I, I think it's a disorder, um, much like diabetes, that develops with disordered eating, um, lack of exercise. Well, alcoholism and chemical dependency come out of regular abusive use of alcohol and drugs. It's not a genetic thing. Um, you can say, "Well, you said your grandfathers were both alcoholics. Great, but my parents." don't drink. I mean, you know, they're, um, they drink some wine, you know, but they're not, they're not drinkers by any means. Um, and, but I found that when I used alcohol and drugs that, um, suddenly this tension that was at the top of my head went out my feet, you know, I no longer had it, so I could be more outgoing. Um, and, um, didn't have this tension of of performance attention um so that's my history
0: so then um what what was it that you know because obviously so i was i guess for listeners to know i was born when you were 38 Mm -hmm. 30 so significantly after that um and my oldest brother is Is was born when you were in your 20s. So was it through that, would you say that then that's really when your faith started to develop into what it is now? Or, you know, is that when your perspective shifted? Because when I grew up, all I knew was your faith in the Lord and your trust in God. And, you know, after your, you know, this kind of this transfer transformative period of time in your life. So would you say it was because of that struggle and turning to drugs and alcohol that then led you to the end of yourself to where you, you then came to this point where you thought, okay, I, there's some, something has to change.
1: Well, all, all of, all of us, when we have um, struggles in life, um, we never fix them all at once. It's a process. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, in my life, I got sober in 1980. So I've been sober for 43 years, you know, so I don't, you know, use anything mood alterating except for caffeine occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) We all need it. (laughs) But, um, you know, I got got sober because I had to, Mm -hmm. because it got so bad and I got into legal problems. You know, I was a pharmacist and a pharmacist with a drug and alcohol problem is a problem. You know, and so um, even though I was doing very well in my profession, did well in school, um, you know, I had this hidden life that eventually caught up with me. And so I came to the end of myself where I just couldn't do it anymore. I went into treatment um, and I started the discovery of God. I actually didn't um, re-accept Christ into my life until 88. So. In 80, I got sober. I was spiritual, you know, involved in 12-step programs um, and, you know, talked a lot about a higher power, um, you know, was willing to say the Our Father. But I was kind of mad at the church. I felt the church had disappointed me somehow. And um, that's probably a result more of twisted thinking than it is a reality. Um, I just didn't understand how all this could have happened to me. Um, and I felt like my spirituality had let me down, and so I was for about eight years afraid to commit to a church, afraid to commit to real mentorship and discipleship. Um, but in '88, I got uh, I got confronted by a neighbor whose Bible study I went to, and. I was listening there and um, mostly being critical of all the people in the Bible study and how little they knew. And Mm -hmm. I had gotten quite a religious education as a kid. And uh, my parents were very intent on teaching us the Bible. And uh, so I knew a lot, Um, but knowing it um, and really knowing it are two
2: different things.
1: And this guy confronted me and he goes, you avoid Jesus. What? But it was like somebody rammed a cold sword through my heart, and so in '88 I really started seeking God, and uh, I really think um, you know the the most important thing to me became to know God, um, you know, seeking Him, finding ways to know Him better, um, and then to honor Him and how I lived, and the more you get to know Him. Um, the more you want to honor him, and um, but it is a relationship, and that's why it takes time. Um, you don't just get it, you know. And and change. Um, there was a lot of things about me. I mean, you know, alcohol and drugs is a big dis, big issue. But um, I had issues with purity of thought, with anger issues, with perfectionism, with workaholism. When I got sober, I pretty much um you know i i was compulsive in other ways like i was trying to make up lost time and i overworked and um i read you know all the time and um and as a result of that had very little conversation with my wife and so i was always doing something felt i always had to be performing and so i still had this anxiety this performance anxiety that was with me but gradually um, God pulled me into a relationship with him and showed me how to handle those things better. Um, but you got to it's been over 40 years. Um, you know, I'm a much more calm <laughs> and stable individual than I was even 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I tend to overcommit, you know, when I didn't just get over, I went and did a thousand hours of internship and took classes and became a certified chemical dependency and alcoholism counselor, worked in family therapy, worked in the probation department here in Columbus, Ohio, um, started a, uh, an outreach program for pharmacists that had drug and alcohol and mental health issues. Um, we've helped over 500 pharmacists. I don't even, I've lost count, but um, I served president and then the and, uh, board chair for um, uh, n- many, many years. I, I really, am, I just resigned probably five years ago from that. But um, so all good things, but again, part of that overachieving performance anxiety um, uh, issue. I
2: Do you think that you felt that kind of overperformance like feelings and that anxiety, like in your relationship early on, like with the Lord as well. Cause I know a lot of people do struggle with like doing, thinking that they can save themselves by the things that they do. Do you feel like that kind of went into your relationship with the Lord or is that something that He freed you from with just like, you know, just fully turning your life over to Him? Cause I think a lot of people, especially when you grow up as a Christian, you almost become numb to like, cause you know, everything about the Bible. So then it's almost like, you know, well, I know everything, so now I have to perform kind of thing. So how, how do you feel about that? Did you feel like that was a part of your relationship right yeah.
1: now? People that that's not a tension in their life um, because, you know, I, I was raised Catholic. Okay. That's, you know, so yeah. um, Catholicism is very much uh, mm-hmm. focused on work and doing, yeah. you know, everything right and following all the rules. And then, you um, being a perfectionist um i've always kind of lived like it all depended on me and so you're always going to have that tension then i start reading the bible and i realize that i'm saved by grace yeah and um you know that's a wonderful thing mentally freeing you know to think that and and accept that but to put it into practice sometimes very difficult yeah um and then if you go to james you know, it says you know faith without works is dead so yeah so there's always this tension. Yeah. Always. And um, so, you know, I the the thing that really helps me, I want to make sure in my heart, my heart of hearts, that um, the number one thing that I love is Jesus Christ. And um, if that's true, um, I'm in a good spot. Yeah. You know, I don't want anything more than I want him. And then the second thing is that I have a biblical worldview view and that what the Bible says is true. What the Bible is true, and it tells me, have no anxiety about anything but in everything, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ. Oh my, is that true? Do I believe the Bible? Do I need to claim it as true? Um, and you know, all the, the, um, promises in the Bible that God, you know, will be, um, uh, walk before us, that Christ goes before us. All we need to do is follow. Yeah. And, um, so Lexi, I struggle with that still, you know, yeah. I, I, catch myself going, I'm acting as if this depends on me.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, that's particularly true in working with other people, like with kids children or with friends or people you're doing outreach for, discipling, mm-hmm. um, you kind of want to take them and, and, and drag them along, but it's yeah. really that's God's program. Um, yeah. You're just available and helpful.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Katie and I have talked a lot about our more controlling tendencies and, you know, and also with those, like that anxiousness and that perfectionism and, you know, it is a struggle. I think everyone has different struggles, but definitely like relatable um, in that sense. And I think a lot of people like, you know, just struggle in that area, thinking that they can control everything. And we've talked about that, just holding on to things so tightly. And, you know, it's like when you loosen your grip is really when you allow God to come in and be God in your life. And um, yeah, I think like, you know, our trust in the Lord is definitely measured by like you know, how, how much faith am I like putting in him and trust I'm putting in him? Cause God can be like this big, or he could be this big in your life, depending on, you know, your faith and your trust in him. So, yeah, which is easier said than done, you know?
1: Two, I mean, a big problem is that we have a short term perspective. We think we got to get everything accomplished in a short yeah. period of time, yeah. but the reality is, you know, I'm at a very good place right now, but it's taken 40 years
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's yeah.
0: okay.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: that absolutely is
2: okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and I think, too, there's, yeah, I think that the, the timeline, because at times you can get so caught up in the here and now and wanting things to be a certain way that you forget, like, in that tension God is working on you and growing mm-hmm. you. And um, I think that that is, it's encouraging, too, just to hear, yeah. like, I don't know, just whenever you talk about your journey and the past 40 years and how there's constantly that growth and that refinement, because I think too, one thing we can fall into with which Lexi and I have talked about on this podcast many times is, okay, I'm this far along in my faith. Why am I not more sanctified or like, yeah. why do I keep struggling? Why do yeah. I keep, you know, all these things and I should have it all together. But yeah. in reality, we're never going to be have it all together on this on this side
1: Well you know and, and you're always fine-tuning and one of the things that it's never just you and Christ in the Bible it's you Christ the Bible and the fellowship mm-hmm. And so in the fellowship you uh, can learn discernment and uh, you can have accountability mm-hmm. and that can go a long way to helping you grow
2: yeah mm-hmm.
1: definitely.
0: So kind of moving into, I'm curious, like the correlation between that part of transformation and then how your mind shifted with um, pharmacy and your job, was that, did you notice that there was a transformation in terms of how you viewed your work? and, um, And then also, because I know we've talked about this a lot and just how you're a little bit different as a pharmacist than most. And was that a huge role in that? Just your faith in God, your trust in him and recognizing like, okay, your perspective is different than maybe most people in the healthcare industry and not just to blindly believe, but actually to question and seek truth. Would would you say that that was a big part of your, um, your discernment? in in the pharmaceutical industry and and led you to where you are today like how did those two things tie in together because i know like in my my even my occupation and i know lexi for you like our perspective on fitness and the industry we work in is very different than most people because of our faith and so how did that play a role in in your in your journey
1: well i mean I, i think about how i approach pharmacy um it's probably a function of my personality, I'm a protagonist. Personality type. So a protagonist, <laughs> you know, likes to spur change mm-hmm. and uh, inspire people to question things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also like an achiever, um, but I'm also a developer. So I like working mm-hmm. with other people and helping people develop. Um, I'm an ideation guy, so I like to think and envision what's possible so in in my college education i had two professors that taught me to question everything that comes out of the pharmaceutical um Mm. um, market and at the time the thing that they were pointing to was um um, hormone replacement therapy for women that were at menopause and Mm. that had just started and we started looking at the studies and the, the, the fallacies that were around them. But, um, you know, basically, you know, studies, if you study drugs and how they affect people, you're supposed to have a um, broad representation of the population, rich, poor, middle-class, um, different races, um, different health conditions, um, different body types. Hopefully you have a good cross-representation. Well, in the studies that the pharmaceutical companies eventually published on estrogen replacement, and initially it was just for menopausal symptoms and then cardiovascular health, um, because that's what they were saying, that it it actually makes you healthier cardiovascularly. Well, it was a rich white woman's study. Um, Women that were very motivated to take estrogen replacement for a, a moist vaginal tract, softer skin, and softer hair. And the women that um, weren't in that group that fell out um, um, probably represented the, the average much better. These women that are also interested in estrogen replacement were interested in diet, and exercise and taking care of themselves. So you got a misrepresentation of the, in, uh, of the um, benefits of estrogen replacement later it came out that women over 50 that take estrogen are at a much higher risk for stroke and cardiovascular disease yeah. and so um uh so then they changed it and they said well you know we're going to use estrogen uh therapy for osteopenic and osteoporosis and again um you know the drug company always has a new angle of what they want to use drugs for mm-hmm. you always have to ask how much does this contribute really to the condition and treating it versus exercise and diet? Mm -hmm. Um, They can't can't split those hairs um, very easily unless they have tens of thousands of patients and they measure everything about their life. And so what these professors taught me at the very least was be very suspicious, follow the money. Um, If they're promoting something, just understand that they have a financial interest in this. My whole life, I really questioned um, drug therapy, um, especially new drugs. And I would say never, ever, ever take a new drug that hasn't been on the market five to seven years. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because I've watched over my 40 years the hundreds of drugs that have been recalled because of side effects that were discovered after the fact. Um, I mean, a good current example would be the MRNA. Um, Look at all the things they're tying to that. Um, It was because it was an emergency use um, authorization, it was not tested. And um, here's another dirty secret about the pharmaceutical industry is that um, they go to places like Ohio State, in Ohio Northern where I went, and they, they enlist these PhDs into doing research to discover new drugs um to test clinically test new drugs and write studies and of course they all hope to be uh, published in the newer in new england journal of medicine and you see the professors names and the, the researchers names on those studies um and you think that this is their entire um findings their studies that they're you know totally independent in this and they get it in the new england uh, journal of medicine or the Lancet, and you think that it's all truth. Bottom line is pharmaceutical company owns the information that you come up with because yeah. they pay the college very, very well. Yeah. And um, they edit that paper after you've written it. Um, it is not, it is not yours. You might get all the kudos for having written the paper and done the research. Um, but the pharmaceutical company wants to protect their pockets and their investment in drug discovery. And so, um, again, I'm just always cautious to recommend a drug therapy for things that maybe you could treat otherwise. Um, and, um, you know, maybe the incentives, um, uh, to promote the drug are more financial than they are.
2: Mm-hmm. helping
1: health same thing's true with farm with uh, nutritional supplements oh yeah i mean you know anybody that sells nutritional supplements they're you mm-hmm. know they're they're definitely biased yeah. and um, so um you know i i look for people that really look at the studies most people can't read studies they don't know what a p-value is mm-hmm. um, you know they they can't really They can't read the studies and really understand what it's saying. Um, Physicians, nurses, and pharmacists, all of our educations were funded by pharma. And so it is a biased education. I was fortunate to have two professors that realized that and taught us that. Mm -hmm. And um, so being a protagonist, I just have been questioning there since I began pharmacy. And and then I, I, you know, I like to, I like to, be creative and try and draw information from different resources like exercise physiology and and nutrition and lifestyle and and uh, acupuncture and uh, just all these Mm -hmm. things that can play a role and help
2: yeah well i think too it's like if you know these companies aren't making money off of They're not going to make money off of you exercising, going out and getting sunshine every day, taking natural supplements that are under $25, you know, all these things. So of course, they're not going to promote these things. And it's so funny because growing up, my parents were really, really into like all the just natural supplements. And they taught us like how to use certain things. Like my dad's like, Oh, you don't take like, you know, Advil and like all these things. There's just natural things that you could take if you have a headache or cramps or whatever. And I always thought they were kind of crazy until I got older. And then I started realizing that, you know, just because it has an FDA stamp on it doesn't mean that it's going to be good for you. Like that they don't actually care about your health. No one's telling you, like, I mean, COVID was the perfect example. They're like, stay inside your homes, wear masks inside your homes, take this, you know, this experimental shot that we have no idea. And now we're seeing the results of it. And I remember, um, so when that, the shot came out, Um, a lot of my family members on my dad's side um, got the shot. And my dad, he had been following some doctors because he just watches like other news, like not like mainstream news. And some of the doctors were saying like, we're going to start seeing the side effects, you know, two to four years after, like, just you have to wait, it's not going to be immediate. And so my dad was like sending articles to family members, and they thought he was crazy. And unfortunately, we're Two, in between that two to four years later, and we're starting to see perfectly healthy people, you know, having cardiac arrests and and falling out and, and like super healthy people, like elite athlete healthy. So um, it's so interesting. But yeah, like my parents were very similar. Like just because like a doctor says that you should or could take this doesn't mean that you should. Um, I've talked to you, Katie, like about hormone stuff too. And I have mm. had hormone issues since I was like 13, 14, starting to go through puberty. And immediately the doctor was like, you know, just go on birth control. It will just, you know, make everything okay. And my parents were like, there's no way she is going on birth. Like my dad was pissed when he found out that that was that they were trying to do. So then my dad just started researching all about like PCOS. And you know, my dad was the one who like delve in. And he's like, no, you need to take these supplements, like do these things to help like regulate you. And that sparked my fascination as I got older because I struggled so much with my, my weight and having a healthy normal cycle and all these things that I'm so happy that my parents like you do not take things like. I remember when my brother broke his arm and they gave him some painkiller and they're like nope you're just gonna take go take an aspirin like they're like deal with the pain you're not taking because we've had friends I had we had a family childhood friend who was an addict for 20 plus years Um, because he, uh, what did he broke something or tore something? I can't remember. I think it was his shoulder. He had shoulder surgery and lifelong addict and didn't get clean until these last couple of years. Like he was an addict from 16 all the way up until I think he's like 32 or 33. So It's just, it's, you know, I'm thankful for my parents now where I thought they were dramatic, but it is so true. And, you know, they don't have the background that you have, but they're like, there's just something suspicious about why they're pushing these drugs. Thank
0: you for listening to the freedom podcast. Make sure to tune in next Friday for part two with Gary Rutherford. Love the show. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple podcasts and share this show with a friend. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the dot freedom podcast